homily for the 14th Sunday in Ordinary Time, July 5th, 2020, St. Mary's Church, Grand Forks. It's impossible not to comment on this being the 4th of July weekend. Patriotism for the red, white, and blue stands in sharp contrast to the crisis recently unfolding in many of our cities and towns. As Catholics who live in this country, it is crucial that we appreciate the way in which the American experiment brings out the best in people of faith, so long as they commit themselves to that goal. Quite a few of those who colonized the various corners of what is now the United States may have asked themselves, what will the official religion of this land be? For example, England had its official religion because of King Henry VIII. Many other countries of the world in which the majority of their population is not Christian operated similarly. Think of Muslims in Saudi Arabia or Hindus in India. For many folks, whether they personally like the idea or not, a religion's official status within a nation was a given. But the backgrounds of our ancestors were diverse. The pilgrims of Massachusetts came here to escape an oppressive regime that worked to stifle their choice. The French who settled New Orleans and the Spaniards who established territories in what are now Texas and New Mexico were Catholic with no concept of a separation between church and state. That's to say nothing of the Quakers in Pennsylvania or the Mormons in Utah. We do well to be thankful for the ingenious and novel solution that our founding fathers enshrined in the First Amendment of the Constitution. They knew well the broad gamut of personal piety that made up the framework of the states, and that it would only proliferate whether devout or not themselves, they sought to provide the free exercise of spirituality and open door. They decided, let's not declare an official religion imposed on everyone from the outside. Rather, let's restrict the government so that it may do no such thing. Let's leave such matters to the consciences of the people. What happened as a result? No single group of Christians could rest on their laurels as the company faith, thereby entitled to financial support, etc. Each church has made of itself what it intended to be, free to be as devout as they desired, so long as they don't perpetrate criminal acts on anyone else. Each individual believer pursues that belief equal before the law as a citizen, not as a subject or serf. A staunch Lutheran from Norway could choose to be a staunch Lutheran here, or convert to Catholicism, or whatever else, without a government monitor steering that process. And the Jew in Brooklyn, or the Baptist in Arkansas, doesn't have to alter their path because of what the Lutheran chooses to be. As for us Catholics, we are not expected or required, but permitted to manifest our love for God in as many outlets as we can conceive of from our parishes, to hospitals, to schools, or to orphanages, and so on. Governor Burgum or President Trump cannot do that for us, but neither do they have the authority to silence us in the public square. Sadly, through our complacency and timidity, we tend to do that to ourselves. When Catholics in America speak of a robust phase, faith, we are not simply being nostalgic or pining for a golden age in our history.
As nice as those record numbers of membership and participation would be, our world is a different place now than 75 years ago, let's say. The body of Christ is more like a smaller remnant of the faithful, bustling in some places but contracted in others. We must take up the challenge to apply the tools we've been given, such as the gifts of the Holy Spirit, in our dialogue with a world that needs the Holy Spirit more than ever. Only through being nourished in Christ will we find ourselves up to the challenge. We don't pray for our country because it is heaven on earth. There is only one heaven. We pray for our country because conversion and holiness are achievable here in a unique way for anyone who reaches out for those gifts. Your king shall come to you. A just savior is he and meek. The words of today's first reading are a prophecy spoken several hundred years before Christ's birth. But there's one scene from the Gospels that focuses our attention on this prophecy, and it's an image we recall every Palm Sunday. Bringing these words of Zechariah to fruition, Jesus rode into Jerusalem astride the colt of a donkey. He mounted no steed of war or prized thoroughbred, but a lowly beast of burden such as the poorest of the population would use. Despite the silly outward appearance of our Lord's entrance, the people lining the street waved palm branches and cried out, Hosanna to the Son of David! How many of them saw this gesture and thought to themselves, This person does not live in any ivory tower. This person holds no disdain toward me. Here is a man to whom I can relate and who relates to me. Such a spirit of meekness is something Jesus not only would esteem in his preaching, but also a trait he would practice. But what exactly does meekness look like as our Lord practiced it? The word meek has gotten a bad reputation. Most people, I suspect, would think of meekness as a defect of character rather than a virtue. The meek person is, they conclude, defective, mousy not up to the task. But can we say any of those things truthfully about Jesus? On the contrary, we cannot deny how bold and courageous he was. Time after time, Jesus came to the temple area or other places to preach when many members of the ruling class were looking for an opportunity to apprehend him. It got to the point where his own apostles tried to talk him out of these trips for fear that he would not make it out alive. When confronting his opponents, Jesus did not cower in fear before them. He spoke out boldly against their hypocrisy, declaring publicly what so many held in their hearts and would not dare to say. He answered their tests bravely and definitively. Whether it was asking him to pass judgment on a woman accused of adultery, or asking him whether they ought to pay taxes to Rome, just to name a few. To be meek, is not to be weak. Meekness is virtuous. It requires confidence and strength. Meekness directs one to lift up and serve another before lifting up oneself. Think of someone in a position of leadership, whether in government, the CEO of a company, or someone along those lines. In many cases, it's as if these folks need to constantly remind us of their standing, or, as Jesus would put it, 
lord it over them. They will shine the spotlight back onto themselves with flamboyant external actions designed to garner attention. Compare that with the Lord Jesus and those saints who have conformed their lives to his in outstanding ways. The Lord's strength is not an aberration from his meekness, but flows out of his meekness. He is convinced of his mission, but it is the Father's mission and work he is about. He is a leader and teacher, not in order to become Palestine's most popular rabbi, but to humble himself in a posture of poverty. It takes the power of the Holy Spirit to be as meek as he was his whole life long. Lastly, let's bring to mind one more person when we talk about the virtue of meekness, the Blessed Virgin Mary. The Mother of Christ, in her great canticle of praise from chapter 1 of St. Luke's Gospel, marveled at how God reverses fortunes. He has looked with favor on his lowly servant, she joyfully exclaimed. He has shown the strength of his arm. He has scattered the proud in their conceit. He has cast down the mighty from their thrones and has lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Mary, who had no claim of her own to greatness, magnified God by her meekness. That is, she made God more visible and possessed God's strength. When we keep this example in mind, we can better understand our Lord's beatitude, in which he said, Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. Amen.